Well, it is uh, really special. That sounds like I'm not mic'd up properly now. But it was 20 years ago that um, I was here meeting with Kurt and some of the other folks, and um, they needed new flooring, and they needed it inexpensively. And so I was able to find some material that had not uh, been used on a product. And then when I came here to meet with, uh, with Kurt a couple of months ago, they were thinking about replacing it. And I thought, yes, that's an exciting pattern. They used it in so many places, and it still looks good. So uh, that is, that is uh, one of the things I think I enjoyed about the career that I have. I had someone tell me that... Uh, you don't just sell flooring, you make spaces beautiful. And so I, 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 I will hold on to that. Well, I, I wanted to uh, just share with you all, um, actually, Jan and I were, uh, were reading through the Bible together and we uh, came to, I think it was Second Kings chapter 18. And let me get my, my notes here because um, I work off, off of notes, but I can't really preach very well with or without them. So we'll see how all of that goes. I'm a rookie. Last time when I was here, when I preached, um, I remember getting to about 1220. I was telling Kurt and uh, all of a sudden I looked down and I was halfway through the sermon and I, find, I just said, well, I think it's about time for us to close. You didn't get any gospel hope, no nothing. It's just time to close in prayer. And uh, so this time, I hope it's, you know, look at your, what you might think is an outline. Do you have, have that there? Um, you're going to look at it and say, that boy hasn't learned a thing. He's got 10 points there that he's going to be preaching on. And, and I'm not going to really do that. Um, it was just simply away from me as I read a text about Hezekiah um, that I could just create a little bit of a synopsis that helped me just grasp uh, what, was, what was in the, in the chapter. You know, when you're a young boy, you're, you're going to be picking up sticks or anything else that looks like a gun. And so when you can get into the Bible and you're looking at kings and you're looking at kingdoms, and you're looking at armies, and you're looking at warfare, you go, this is some good Bible here. And so when I really got to 2 Kings 18, and I read, I read these words, it's verses um, 5 and 6, and it says this about this fellow, King Hezekiah. It says that Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of his Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands that the Lord had given Moses. And I thought that was absolutely fascinating. I'm sure I'd read that before, but the very thought that Hezekiah, maybe, if, if nothing else, he is a one-of-a-kind king. And so I thought, okay, he's a one-of-a-kind king. Well, what about all of these other kings? And um, so here Jan and I were reading through the Bible. And if you're familiar with 1 Kings and 2 Kings, it's got all of these kings. It has the 20 kings in the northern kingdom, and they were all bad kings. And then it has 
the 20 kings that were in the southern kingdom, Judah, and eight of them were good kings. But we, when we got to somewhere around 2 Kings 14, and it says something like this. Now, it's, it's not exactly right, but it says, In the second year of uh, Joash, uh, son of Jehoahaz, Amaziah was born to Joash. And so Jan, she just throws up her hands. She said, all of these kings, I can't keep them all straight. You've got Joash here, you've got Joash here, you've got Jehoahaz here, you've got Jehoahaz here. And it was really very confusing. And so we are working through these kings and figuring out exactly what is their particular to him. But we're, we're really familiar really with the, the United Kingdom where the people of Israel said, we want a king. That didn't please the Lord at all. He was their king. He's still our king. But they said, we want a king so that we can be like the other nations. And in fact, that was an ominous thing for the people of Israel. They saw Saul, a man who was a head taller than the rest of uh, the, the people there in Israel, and they selected him. We find out later when David was um, selected that the Lord doesn't look on the outside, he looks on the heart. He looked on David's heart. He wasn't so impressed with Saul's statue. And in fact, Saul really was a person that was very much as afraid of people as he was, of, had a fear of the Lord. And so we see that David became king after 42 years of Saul's rule. And then David ruled, and he was a man after God's own heart. He wasn't a perfect king. We know that from the stories about him. But he was a great shepherd king, and he loved the Lord with all of his heart. And so he dies. But before he dies, there's a lot of intrigue and Solomon becomes king. And so after 40 years of David's rule, Solomon becomes king. And Solomon asked the Lord, Lord, will you give to me what I need to rule such a people of these? I need wisdom. And so God gave him a very special gift of wisdom. And he became really at those times a person who was almost a wonder of the world as people from came all around to be able to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Of course, he wrote many of the Proverbs, um, not all of them. But uh, Solomon, as wise as he was, he turned away from the Lord and it really angered him. Uh, he took on lots of wives, gathered lots of horses, and he began to worship as the nations around them were worshiping the, you know, the, the, uh, God of the Sidonians, the, the Ashtoreth, and then the, the God of the Moabites, Chemosh, and then the God of the Ammonites, the one that was maybe not the worst, but I think it was the worst, and it was the God of the Moabites, and he was Molech. And so the, God took the kingdom of Israel, the united kingdom, and he divided it in two. Rehoboam was Solomon's son, and he was the king. But God told Jeroboam, one of, um, one of Solomon's workers, he said, he prophesied, and he said, the kingdom's going to be taken away. It's going to be split, and you'll have 10 kingdoms, and that's what happened. And so here we have these 20 bad kings that the nation of Israel had. Their capital was the city of Samaria. 
Occasionally it was called Samaria. And then we have um, Israel, or excuse me, Judah, and of course the capital there is, is Jerusalem. I'm saying this because as we go through the list of, well, there's not anything much to say about the um, kings of Israel. They were all bad. Perhaps least bad of all, ironically, was Hoshea, and he was captured in, in uh, 722. Uh, Samaria was um, conquered, and the rest of Israel was deported away by the Assyrians. And um, so, at any rate, I, you know, you had a couple of bad kings, Rehoboam and his son, but then they had 66 good years of Asa and Asa's son, uh, Jehoshaphat, and then a couple of bad kings and a bad queen. And then it, Judah had 137 years of what we would call, or as the Bible calls, good kings because they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. They, they followed the Lord. They didn't follow the Lord perfectly. Invariably, when you get through these kings, you see that one thing that they did not do was they never would be able to deal with these um, high places, these big, big trees that are called the spreading trees, and, um, and they never would take down these asterisk poles. Eugene Peterson calls these um, the uh, stops uh, for religion and sex. It was a really awful, degrading thing. It was not only morally decaying and a, and a stench in the nostrils of God, but it was also physically harmful for them because the nations were so debauched um, that God really needed in every way to be able to protect his special people uh, from all these other kings. These 137 kings, or the 137 years of these kings really gave uh, Judah an opportunity to grow and become a strong nation and turn back to the Lord but after four really good kings, uh, one of them uh, not so well known, but Jotham, and then Amaziah after him, 40 years for Jotham, 25 for Amaziah, and then the king that we know most or best in this is Uzziah. And Uzziah ruled for 52 years, um, and he was a good king, but he wasn't as good. He wasn't exactly like uh, Hezekiah. And then after uh, Uzziah, then he had his son Jotham, who was also a good king. And so you would think that over 137 years, a lot of things happened, except Ahaz becomes king. And it says that Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he ruled for 16 years. And you would think, with all of the things that Ahaz did, how could he dismantle 137 years of good work of these kings in just a matter of 16 years? But we find out, as some of the uh, complications of reading Scripture, that these kings had co-regents. And so Ahaz was a co-regent of Uzziah, of Uzziah's son, Jotham. And also, he was a co-regent also uh, for I think 14 years when Hezekiah first became king as a co-regent to Ahaz, a very bad king. The thing that we learn about Ahaz most of all is that he introduced the horrible practice of sacrificing 
children in the valley of Hinnom to Molech, the Ammonite and Moabitess king. He, he was a terrible king. He got them in a lot of trouble militarily and that sort of thing, but finally Ahaz is gone, and in 715 B.C., Hezekiah takes the throne all to himself to be able to rule by himself for, for 20 years. So Hezekiah, there was none like him before him, neither was there one after him. And why, why is that so? Because in the very first month of, of Hezekiah's rule, the text tells us that he went after all of these um, bad places that were out there. He, he, he elicited the help of the people and they destroyed all of these high places, took down the Asherah poles. He cleaned up the countryside. He, it was an external work that was absolutely amazing. But also, he, he also was very careful about the internal um, things that he did. And in 2 Chronicles 29, you'll see that, um, and by the way, to get the full story, um, you're really going to be looking at 2 Kings 18 and 19 and 2 Chronicles um, 32, which is sort of what you would call the cliff notes of the story. And then you have Isaiah 36 and 37. But if you go back into 2 Chronicles 29, the first thing that he does, Ahaz has shut the doors of the temple. He opens the doors of the temple. He reveals the doors because all the gold had been stripped off the doors and the thresholds and some of the other places that had. He had removed, Ahaz had removed all of this, the furniture that had been designed uh, in the book of Exodus and, and put in place for the worship of God. And uh, he just, and Hezekiah had his work cut out for him. But he, he, does, he, he does an incredible work. Then he begins to work with the Levites and the priests. And, and he says, we want to purify the temple. So they purified the temple. And they also um, purified themselves, consecrated themselves before the Lord. And so Hezekiah did all of these things. And then he would organize the priest and make sure that they had enough for worship. And last of all, along with his work with the priest, it's amazing. And when I read this, I was astounded is that he sent letters to Israel because they hadn't uh, celebrated the Passover for a number of years. Over the years where Ahaz had anything to do with the worship within the temple and celebrating the feast that had been instituted. And, and so he sends, he calls the people of Judah to worship, but he writes letters out to the uh, different, um, different um, parts of Israel, Ephraim, the tribes, Manasseh, and then Dan to Beersheba, which is not, it's an area, but all through Israel, he sent letters out and said, come to Judah, come to Jerusalem, and worship the Lord with the Passover. And so some of them, of course, scoffed in the northern kingdom, but many of them came, and for the first time in a long time, uh, they were able to celebrate the Passover. They had such an incredible time during that week that the priest and 
the um, officials that he had and the king's officials and Hezekiah said, let's keep going for one more week. So it really was an amazing work that Hezekiah did um, in order to uh, really restore to God's people the thing that they had been terribly missing during the reign of Ahaz. So I wanted you to just turn with me, uh, if you would, to 2 Chronicles 32. There you have um, that handout. Uh, and so I'll just start. I think I left, I left mine down here. Let me get that one. I thought I had my trusty handwritten one. But... Um, So just read along with me if you would. It says, after that, after all that, Hezekiah had so faithfully done, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. He laid siege to the fortified cities, thinking to conquer them for himself. When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he had intended to wage war against Jerusalem, he consulted with his officials and military staff about blocking off the water from the springs outside the city, and they helped him. They gathered a large group of people who blocked all the springs and the stream that flowed through the land. Why should the kings of Assyria come and find plenty of water, they said. Then he worked hard repairing all the broken sections of the wall and building towers on it. He built another wall outside one and reinforced the terraces of the city of David. He also made, made large numbers of weapons and shields. He appointed military officers over the people and assembled them before him in the square at the city gate. He encouraged them with these words, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him, for there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people gained confidence from what Hezekiah the king of Judah said. Later, when Sennacherib king of Assyria and all his forces were laying siege to Lashish, he sent his officers to Jerusalem with this message for Hezekiah, king of Judah, and for all of the people of Judah who were there. This is what Sennacherib, king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing your confidence that you remain in Jerusalem under siege? When Hezekiah says, the Lord our God will save us from the hand of the king of Assyria, he is misleading you to let you die of hunger and thirst. Did not Hezekiah himself remove this God's high places and altars, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before one altar and burn sacrifices on it? Do you not know what I and my predecessors have done to all the peoples of the other lands? Were the gods of those nations ever able to deliver their land from my hand? Who of all of the gods of these nations that my predecessors destroyed has been able to save his people from me. 
How then can your God deliver you from my hand? Now do not let Hezekiah deceive you and mislead you like this. Do not believe him for no God of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or the hand of my predecessors. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? Well, we see that um, that's a bit threatening, isn't it? And of course, the threat is on. And, and of course, uh, as you look on your outline, you can see that this is, this is really a story of a quite, quite an intense threat and an excessive amount of danger that the people of Judah, who are now all gathered in the city of Jerusalem, the other fortified cities and places were being, they were under siege and being conquered by King Sennacherib. And so this is, this is Sennacherib's message to Hezekiah. Sennacherib's officers spoke further against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. The king also wrote letters ridiculing, ridiculing the Lord, the God of Israel, and saying this against him, just as the gods of the people of the other lands did not rescue their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not rescue his people from my hand. Then they called out in Hebrew to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to terrify them and to make them afraid in order to capture the city. They spoke about the God of Jerusalem as they did about the other gods of the other peoples of the world, the work of human hands. King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, cried out in prayer to heaven about this. And the Lord sent an angel who annihilated all the fighting men and the commanders and officers in the camp of the Assyrian king. So he withdrew to his own land in disgrace. And when he went into the temple of his God, some of his own sons, his own flesh and blood, cut him down with the, with the sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others. He took care of them on every side. Many brought offerings to Jerusalem for the Lord and valuable gifts for Hezekiah, king of Judah. From then on, he was highly regarded by all of the nations. And so, as you look down, as I've broken down these verses, you see the extraordinary danger that they faced. You also see that, um, well, Hezekiah did what he knew, to, knew he needed to do. It's not up to him alone. So he enlisted the support of the people. And one of the things, of course, they did was to erect defenses. Uh, and they did this by... Um, the walls that had been um, really broken down from other attacks and they were weakened and stuff, they developed those to a, a greater strength. And uh, then they built high towers. Um, they actually, we think, built a tower over the spring of, of um, Gihon. And this was these, these springs that would flow into the city and it was their water source, but they decided, well, we're not gonna let the Assyrians have 
water, and so they, they blocked all of the streams and the parts of the uh, spring of Gihon, and Hezekiah and his workers built a 1,700-foot tunnel under one of the walls into the pool of Siloam, and there it, all of the water was channeled in there so that the people had water. And they had quite, um, quite a supply of foods with so many people that had come in. And so he also exhorted the people. Um, you know, that's what a good leader will do. When things, when the chips are down, this is what Hezekiah, being encouraged himself uh, with faith and trust in the Lord, as we read in 1 Corinthians 18, 5 and 6, Hezekiah believed God. He believed what God had said to him in his word, and he believed that as I express to the people what God has promised, um, that they would respond, and respond they did. Engaging reality, though, well, there's the threat. And if you know anything about the Assyrian people, they were really, really violent. They were known for very famously flaying or skinning people alive. And so when they would capture these different cities or kingdoms that you hear these messengers talking about, uh, and, and they would impale them, they would uh, cut off limbs. I mean, they did all kind of terrible things to people. And they did this as psychological warfare because really what they wanted to do was that to have all of these places where they were trying to conquer be so fearful of what would happen to them if they resisted that they would just capitulate. And so this is, this is really what they were doing as these three messengers from Hezekiah was coming to uh, the gates there and they stopped right there kind of where the water was and they start talking to them about all of these nations that, that their gods didn't protect them. And so at this point in time, um, the people have needed to be exhorted and to have, their, have faith because now they're hearing, there are these, uh, they sent out three of the officials, Hezekiah did. It was, um, of course, Eliakim, was um, actually a palace official, but he was, he was um, Hezekiah's uh, prime minister. He, he was second in charge and he was very trusted by uh, Hezekiah. Shebna uh, became, he was, a, he was a scribe, but he was really the royal secretary. And then the third one, a guy named Joah that they mentioned in one of the texts. He was um, really kind of the historian the record keeper, and perhaps a herald of King Hezekiah. And so these three men are out in front of the city walls and they're meeting with the messengers of um, Hezekiah. The text tells us that it was a Rabsaris, a, um, Tartan, and Rabshakeh. And this was actually the commander of the Assyrian army, another high palace official, but this fellow, um, Rabsharis, he, he was quite a talker. I think that he was equally as arrogant 
as the king of Assyria. He could speak for the king of Assyria in the kind of language that needed to be said so that these countries would have such fear stricken in their hearts that they would, that they would capitulate. <clears throat> and so, again, Hezekiah has um, done everything that he can defend them from. And, um, well, performing the needs, giving courage, comprehending the extent of the damage that could be done, the danger that they faced. You know, Proverbs 27, 12 says that um, the prudent see danger and they take cover, but the foolish keep going and suffer for it. And so Hezekiah has engaged the reality. God has said this, Sennacherib with his mighty vast army and his messengers have said this. Now what are we going to do? And so after, <clears throat> after all of this has taken place, they, there's only really one thing that they can do. And it's probably the most important thing. And I think that we have to, when we, when we think about the threats today that we have to our lives, I, I mean, I'm out on the road driving and perhaps you are too. And you may see someone driving down the road right beside you and they're like this. And either it makes you fearful of what's gonna happen to you one day or you get really angry at them because of what you see them doing and the danger that they expose others to with what they're doing. I was just reading an article about artificial intelligence and where they think that's going. And some of the fellows that really were on the front edge of developing these things are saying, we don't know where this is going, but it really looks terrible. They're, they're concerned about literally annihilation of the human race or nuking one another, or more pandemics that could be, I mean, they're very, very afraid. And so there are certain organizations that have been developed that have these standards of working with artificial intelligence so that it's in a safe uh, process. Um, but, you know, it's not the most fun time in an in the life of our nation and our federal government right now, too. We think about the policies that, and the laws that have, have been implemented. We think about, um, really, our, the, the economy and, and where is that going and what are some of the people. These are all threats. These are things that are threats to our way of life. Moral decay, um, wow. Uh, sexual gender identification things that are going now that are hardly we can hardly it takes your breath away to think about what's going on in our world today Jan was just reading to me about retail crime being on the rise and organized crimes going into these stores like Target and Walmart and and just going in with carts with their shopping list loading up with thousands of dollars of things and just going out and if they're getting stopped you know then they're going to intimidate you you want us to beat you up or hurt you and these these kinds of things there's a, there's an incredible moral decay that's taking place in our country 
that is a threat to our way of life, especially to us um, as, as Christians. I was um, thinking about these threats that we face, and there are other threats that we face. Recently, um, you know, we, Tim Keller just, just passed away, and um, I was reading a little article that he and uh, Kevin DeYoung, who was the pastor of Christ Covenant in uh, Matthews, South Carolina, that they were having, they were getting ready uh, for um, a podcast that they were going to do. <clears throat> and, um, and, and Tim Keller had been diagnosed. And he sort of, with some solemnity, but some, with some humor as well, said, well, when you get pancreatic cancer, at least you can do what you want to do now. And, um, and so Kevin DeYoung thought, well, that's Tim, Tim Keller. And of course, the things that he wanted to do was to do everything that he could do while he could do it um, before he made his exit. James Boyce, you may or may not be face, familiar with him, but he, one of our, the famous Presbyterian churches, and it's now a church in our denomination, is 10th Presbyterian in um, Philadelphia. And of course, uh, we had Jerry McFarland as one of our associate pastors who was a pastor there, and he's gone back to Philadelphia and is back on staff with them. But James Boyce was um, a pastor that came after Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was a very famous radio preacher. And James Boyce got there, I think, when he was around 29 years of age, and Within one year, he was doing the Bible Hour, taking the place of Donald Gray Barnhouse, a really good pastor, uh, an honored teacher and pastor. But on May the 7th in 2000, he mounted the pulpit for the very first time, or for the very last time, on Good Friday, just before he was going to preach the doctors told him that he was diagnosed with a very aggressive liver cancer. And so he, he stands up and he shocks his congregation and he, he says, um, I need to let you know that I have an aggressive form of cancer and the doctors say that I'm dying. And I might presume that you might ask the question, should we pray and should we pray for a miracle? And he said, you can do that. But I have to tell you that I think that the God who does miracles and can do miracles, he's also the God who could have just as well kept me from getting this disease. And then he says, I think if you really want to know how to pray, you need to pray that God will be glorified. In the history of the Christian world, Jesus Christ was most glorified and glorified God, not through being saved from the cross, but by becoming a sacrifice for us on the cross. So if you really are inclined to pray, would you pray that God would be glorified through that my death. And so when we think about ourselves, you know, our, all of us 
It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. But Jesus Christ has taken upon himself that judgment for us. And so with Tim Keller and James Voice, you can say that in all of our lives, it's true that God sometimes saves us from something, a circumstance, an issue, a relationship. But quite often, it's his desire that he would save us through a trial, through some circumstance. And all of us have faced circumstances in our lives where we went through it. And then when we came out on the other side of it, we saw God in a new way. As a matter of fact, the way that we really were most affected, generally speaking, is the work of God to develop faith in our lives. And so really, what, what is faith? And I, one of the things that I like to think about faith is faith is a divinely spiritual enablement that we have that we are able to see that which is unseen. You know, the scriptures say we walk by faith and not by sight. And so the things that God has said in his word that are as exceedingly great and precious promises, along with who God says he is, his divine attributes, his um, eternal power, those are the things that, that become ultimate reality to us. We may see a threat that is such incredible danger before us, but we don't believe that it's ultimate reality. What God has said to us, that becomes what we really believe more than what we can see in, with our senses, the physical senses that God gives us, including our brains, to process exactly as much data as we can to understand what is before us. And so for me, you know, I've, I, I just personally, um, you know, talking about flooring, um, after I'd been gamefully employed for 20 years and people had asked me over the years, why don't you start your own business? And, and I said, well, why would anybody want to do something like that when they're gamefully employed? That's risky business. And sure enough, though, there was a time when I was, well, maybe 51 years old in some months. And, and a friend of mine who was one of our suppliers, a good Christian brother, and he said, we need to start a business. And he said, here's what we're going to do. And it really looked a lot different than any other business that I had thought of as it was related to flooring. And in my quiet times, I was reading through the book of John, and it was, I really think God is impressing me that he wants me to do something that I've never thought was a very wise thing to do. And I thought, well, you know, what would be the benefits of doing something like that? And uh, first of all, I thought, well, if I had my own business, then I may have the opportunity to train some young men that I had come into contact with, some of them all over the country through the homeschool system that we have that um, might give them an opportunity to, to make a living, develop skills, and gain some knowledge. And I thought that would be really great. 
And so, okay, I thought about that. And then I thought about all of the times when people were, you know, when there are solicitations for funds, missionaries, and various things like that. And I, often I was with Jan struggling with, could we give to that or not give to that? And I thought, you know, maybe financially things may improve. I want to say my motives were no, noble about making more money, but I thought I would have more opportunity. I always wanted to go on missions trips, and I never had been able to do that, except really one time, and uh, that was to go visit our daughter in Mongolia when she was there. But I was persuaded, you need to start this business. And so off we go, and, the, and it, it went, amazingly well starting out, but things began to happen uh, within the business internally and some externally like 2008 and 2009. We were marketing the churches and projects were being canceled right and left and those kinds of things. And uh, it turned out on the financial side, we didn't do very well. As a matter of fact, we, we really got behind the eight ball financially. It was a, a, a swimming pool of red ink. And so how were we going to deal with that? And God gave us some wisdom about, well, these are the things that you need to do. And then there were other resources that came in that people just wanted to help you out. And it took us 10 years to recover from six-figure debt. But God really helped us through in the end, when I asked myself, what was the purpose of doing all of these things that you're doing in business when you really maybe helped one young man and you certainly didn't improve your financial resources, what, what came of it? Well, what came of it is, is that in terms of a business, I saw us being able to do things I never thought could be done projects that we were able to work on, and um, just the first 20 years that I was in that business, I, I wondered how did people do what they did, and it was really God helping us to do what I, I didn't think we could do. And so at the end, I just told Jan, I said, I think what God really wanted to do is regardless of how good my motives and my goals were, is that God wanted to be working in my life developing faith in my life so that the ultimate realities were what God was saying and what he wanted to do in my life and in my life through, through other people. So we're not going to have all 10 of those uh, points. I just want to encourage you, why don't you look through Isaiah uh, 37, 36, and 37, and also First Kings or Second Kings 18 and 19, so that you can get this whole incredible story about a king in which there was none like him. Hezekiah, as a demonstration of faith, got all of the priests, sent them to um, Isaiah, "I need to hear from God." Sennacherib and his vast army are out there and either we're going to give up and be deported away, which was their practice, or we're going to resist them 
and we're going to suffer destruction and death. And then Isaiah, would you turn with me to Isaiah 37? I, I, I just want to read this. We've got time. It's not 1220 yet. Look at uh, Hezekiah's prayer. And by the way, God did an amazing thing for them physically. Uh, Sennacherib heard reports that the king of Ethiopia, or Cush, was coming to fight against them. And so it made him withdraw. But as he was withdrawing, he sends his messengers again to them with letters for Hezekiah. Don't think you're off the hook. I'll be back. You think this is some way that God has saved you, but God hasn't saved you. We'll be back. <clears throat> and so Hezekiah, starting with verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. That sounds like David with Goliath, doesn't it? It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste to all of these people. He's engaged reality. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they are not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, you, Lord, only are God. Well, God answers that prayer in a powerful way. If you go over a little bit, you will see God's response to Sennacherib. I've listened to your insolence, the arrogance in which you spoke about me and compared me among the other gods of the earth. Well, we read it in our call to worship. I am God and there are no other gods, only spirits, demonic powers that are at work, minions of Satan, but I and I alone am God. And so he says to Sennacherib, I'm going to send you back from the way that you came, and I'm going to do it by putting a hook in your nose. And so this is often the way that with captives that they would take a, a hook and run it through their lip and through their nose, and they would take people away in captivity. And so God says, the way you've done other people is exactly what I'm going to do. And so as Sennacherib continues his withdrawal, it says that very night, an angel of the Lord killed 185,000 of Sennacherib's army. And so that Sennacherib then had to retreat to the great city of Nineveh. You know why Jonah didn't want to go there. 
And there he remained king for 20 more years. But in six, what was it? Uh, yeah, I think it was six, 681 that his sons came in while he was worshiping his God in his temple and they assassinated him. And that was the end of the great king, Sennacherib. So I, I really, for me, the, there are two points that I really had stuck here in the notes somewhere. And the first one really is that with, with Hezekiah, Hezekiah had faith that trusted and, and, and he was a man of action. But he wasn't just a man of action. He was a man of action that had faith in who God said he was and that God would help him. And, and so he took all of the resources of not only the water, but the people and the materials that they needed to build towers, strengthen the walls, earth, all of these things he did. But he also was a man that knew that more importantly than what he was able to do for the people to defend them or to say to the people to encourage him, it was to go to God and earnest prayer. And that's precisely what Hezekiah did. And God answered that prayer in a most astonishing and powerful way. And so I, I ask you, how has God saved you from things? How has he saved you through them? And, and we have all experienced these trials in our lives where uh, you, you wondered how they would be resolved. How would I come out on the other end if something doesn't do something? If God doesn't do something before I really get there? But then you get there, and you really know that you need a resource greater than yourself and greater this, than the physical things that this world would offer you in order to be saved, either from or through them. So I just I want to ask you, would you take some time over this next week to think about your life? Think about all the ways that God has shown himself strong to you on his behalf. Um, the psalmist David said that a king is not saved by his vast army. A great warrior is not saved by his strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety or deliverance despite its great strength. We really need the God of heaven to be the one that saves us in whatever circumstances we may find. And he has gloriously saved us. You know they say when you're trying to figure out from your values what are my priorities? What are my goals? How am I going to get these things done? They say in, in the life jar, remember they say put the big rocks in first. Don't start throwing in the sand and the pebbles. Well, God has for us through Jesus Christ, he's, he's got the big rocks in. 
They're, they're there. It's an eternal salvation that's been given us as a gift of our faith through grace so that we can't boast. It's given to us because of what Jesus Christ did. He, he wasn't saved from the cross. He asked the Lord, his father in Gethsemane, will you save me from this cup? Okay, it's not my way, your way be done. And so he took the cup of God's wrath against mankind's sin. He turned the cup up. He drank it all, dregs and all, for us. It's, it's the hardest thing God ever did. He did it for us. So, however many more days that we have to live, how then shall we live? Well, we live by faith, not by sight. Well, let me just pray. Heavenly Father, it is amazing grace. It's amazing grace that we know you, the one true God. And as we're gathered here on this day, we, we ask you would, you, would you refresh us with your presence and give us renewed faith in who you are, your divine attributes, your mighty power, your mighty power to save. The psalmist David said, who is this king of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the king of kings. We thank you that he became the captain of our salvation by being made like us and suffering as he lived as we did as a human and taking upon our sin. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to grow in him. May you be glorified through him and his work in our lives. We ask you to do this as we exalt your name and exalt in you, the God of our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.